everybody, and thank you for downloading the Leeds Book Club podcast. Uh, we have a special guest joining us this evening. As you know, we've been heavily involved in the Sharing Stories campaign being run by Arts and Minds as part of the NHS effort to increase awareness about um, mental health issues and learning difficulties. And we're joined this evening by the speaker from the opening event, uh, Peter Bullimore, who is a well, one of the leading members of the Hearing Voices Network and author, also an author of a children's book called A Village Named Pumpkin. Hi, Peter. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Hi, Neve. Nice to be here. Um, if you wouldn't mind, uh, how did you get involved in the Hearing Voices Network? Would you give us a little bit of background and why you're involved in this campaign? Yes, I'm a, I'm a voice hearer myself. I heard voices for many years and uh, I spent a lot of time in psychiatric services and nothing really helped. Um, unfortunately, I, I finished up at Hearing Voices Group. I was encouraged by a social worker to go, and uh, they asked me to go to a workshop. I didn't really know what to expect, I didn't know what one was. And um, three people from the Hearing Voices Network came and they talked about their journey to recovery and the different relationship they had with their voices. And I kind of, over the years, got more heavily involved with them and they helped, helped me make sense of my own experiences. Obviously, you're now turning that into helping other people cope with their voices. Yes, yes, I uh, I do a lot of teaching on the subject, and I do help other people in the sim that's been in a similar situation that I've been in as well. Mm. So, when did the NHS approach you about sharing stories? No, what well, it was uh, when I because I, I self-published my book, and I got the the lady that works with me to uh, do a mail shop around everybody that we knew, and people were kind enough to pass it on to different departments, and it was uh, Victoria Ben that uh, contacted me and said she was interested in talking about it. Um, I hadn't heard of the sharing stories before, but I'm really impressed with how it's been set up. I think it's a brilliant idea myself. I, I've um, posted a little piece on the blog about why, personally, I think it's such an interesting project. And I think it's because I gained most of my social knowledge from books. There's only so much you can experience. Everything else you learn, you know, from, from fiction, from television, from films, from reference books, and where that information is outdated and you can recognize it like you know racist language that kind of thing it's really um, interesting to see the different societal views but where it's something like mental health problems there's still there's still such so much that we need to learn about about mental health problems and a lot of the stigma still exists so i think going back and reading fiction and seeing how it was described, is that still the way we would view it nowadays? You know, I, th I think it's such a good way of getting people to challenge their, their current perceptions. I think it is. I think it's really important what you say about um, uh, sometimes we read books and there's aspects of racism in there. Hmm. Um, it was interesting, I was just doing a presentation on paranoia on Friday to, uh, to workers from Sheffield Care Trust. And I, and I said, you know, when we, if you look at the, the United Kingdom historically, when we had uh, black minority ethnics, the Jews, the Irish, when they came to these shores, we persecuted them. In some aspects, we still do. Mm. And I think it's important people should take time to talk to the elders of those communities to understand how a body of people, they came together to break down victimization and exploitation. And that, they could actually use that as a skill to break down victimized exploitation for people with mental health. Right. Well, I think, obviously, with uh, as I said, with, uh, with people that's come to these shores and have been victimized, uh, we can actually learn from how they came together as a body of people to break down victimization and exploitation. Yeah. And that's a vast knowledge that we can pass on to people in mental health services that do suffer victimization and exploitation, because they are a marginalized community. Oh, definitely. And I mean, the statistics back that up. 
when when they say that um one in four adults will experience a mental health um issue at some point in their life um but that doesn't necessarily mean that one in four of us at any one time suffers from mental health problems yet only one in ten in prison is free of mental health problems that would suggest that we're in some cases criminalizing a problem rather than supporting people who need a little bit of additional help that's right i, I think i think one of the problems is that break that causes the, the barriers and stigma <laughs> it, it, it's a diagnostic procedure you know we, we use terms like uh, schizophrenia and things like that well, that, that doesn't ever tell you anything about a person and when we, we look at the 10 percent 10 percent of the general population hear voices which can be classed as a symptom of schizophrenia. That, that is as common as asthma. Exactly. 10% of the population hear asthma. But, you know, I will get people come up to me and say, hi, Pete, I'm Dave, I'm a schizophrenic. I don't get people coming up to me and say, hi, Dave, I'm an asthmatic. You know, people start to live that label. We should look beyond that. Well, if we work with a label, we'll not break down the stigma and discrimination. You've got to work with a person and look at what brings people into psychiatric services. And usually it's a society problem rather than a biological or a genetic problem. And it is something that's happened with with more physical, um, you know, what we used to term physical disabilities, where there's something that you can visually see is wrong with somebody. For example, being lame, having sight issues, not being able to hear. You know, we used to stigmatize based on that. Now that happens so much. It's so much less acceptable in society to do that. But we still have this idea that if we can't we can't see a manifestation of what you're feeling, Right. It might not be real, or it's way worse than you're telling us. I think the layperson suddenly feels like it's their place to judge, rather than to yeah. just listen and try and learn. Yeah, yeah. I think the interesting thing about it as well is I think I think there's a very bit of a lot of uh, a lot of class divide in this as well. I think if you if you work in class and you've not got much money, you're very much easy to get the labels that stigmatise. Uh, if you're quite, if you're quite wealthy, mm. uh, that kind of thing, we get we call people eccentric rather than mad. Yeah. So I think there's a big thing in there, and I think it, it, I think it get in society it gets very confusing because um, people will have been to school today, mm-hmm. and they would have been told it's acceptable to hear voices. Yeah. Because we do a lot of religious education. The yeah. Bible is full of voices. The Quran is full of voices. Voice hearers. You know, Jesus spoke to God. Paul on the road to Damascus spoke to a bright light. Moses spoke to a burning bush. Yeah. But when we stand up now and say, I'm a voice here, right? So, oh, no, England, that means you've got a disease in the brain. We need to medicate you and lock you up and exclude you from society. So they're saying, actually, what has society done to you to bring you here? What is the meaning of those voices? And we've really got to educate society. But I don't think it's just it's society. I think the biggest thing we've got to reclaim is the media. Because the media have really got to be held responsible for a lot of stigma and discrimination. Certainly, at the moment, the um, Levinson inquiry, Levinson inquiry, is um, is revealing some grotesque abuses that have taken place, and 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 a lot of people, I mean, Charlotte Church, for example, spoke very eloquently about how her mother's mental health deteriorated as a direct result of this. That's not that's, even, right. that's not even looking at people who have been, you know, ha- have been humiliated and embarrassed purely because a personal issue has been revealed publicly. And this has been going on, I mean, as, as you say, going back to, to our holy texts, to the, the Quran, the Torah, the Bible, I mean, that's, that's just within sort of the Western world. Why isn't this normalized? And, and you know, right. as you were saying with the class system, if, if, if somebody 
at 16 starts to develop, starts to hear voices or becomes, you know, depressive. If the family is in a position to, they can offer them support. In some cases, that person might be, be 25, 30 or 40 before they have a full breakdown. And it's obviously going to be more extreme. Why, why aren't, why don't we, you know, take, sit, sit kids down in school and I'm, you know, and sort of say, how's, how's everything going in your mind? It's totally normal to be a little upset, but let's communicate about it. Uh, it's true because if you look at what happened in Norway recently, the the terrible tragedy, the guy uh, Blevik that killed mm. all those people. Mm. Now I actually believe one of the best decisions that ever came back from that trial was was classed as sin. Yes. Because but it's interesting now he's being classed as sin. No one talks about it. If he'd been classed as having schizophrenia, we'd still be talking about it. Oh, and the media would still be talking about it. Actually, so actually, same people do co commit atrocities as well. It's not all to do with mental health. Mm. I think the statistics probably show. People without diagnosis are more dangerous. The way that that was reported in the press, it actually caused a lot of resentment um, for people in my life who have, at some point, had to had to reach out for additional support. They really resented the idea that because this horrifying event had taken place, this somehow meant he must be crazy and, and he must be mad. He must be in the same box as them, even though. They may have had depression or they, you know, they might have had um, dyslexia in school, which was classified as a learning difficulty. But suddenly they're all lumped in together because it's all seen as a mental health problem. And, you know, they were saying, norm, you know, normal, sane people do horrible things yeah. all the time. Why why is this too extreme for that? Yeah. Yeah, and I think, again, as I say, I'm, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not very pro-diagnosis. I uh, don't really see what it tells you about the person because psychiatry can only diagnose on opinion and assumption. Yeah. There's no biological test you can, you can actually do. And the number of times I've had said people say to me, well, you know, you should listen to psychiatrists. They're very intelligent people. But so was Adolf Shipman, but you won't leave your grandmother with him, would you? It's well made. Um, and, and I mean, that's the, other, that's the other thing that perhaps we, the, certainly the media doesn't seem to emphasize, that this is an equal opportunity um, uh, condition. It doesn't matter whether you're, in fact, uh, on, on one end of the, the spectrum, there seems to be evidence that if you are above, of higher than normal intelligence, you are more likely to be uh, affected at some point in your life. But we, again, we seem to have this idea that it's, it only impacts certain people that it's it's to be found in these places rather than saying you know I'm, I'm, Stephen Fry did a very interesting documentary and he met with a woman who had been an, an on the academic A-list and was doing her PhD at university and she had a breakdown which she never fully recovered from she was a very intelligent person it's, it's no indicator unfortunately for knowledge it's not I think well what I would ask that lady was, did you want to do a PhD or did you do it for someone else? And that's when the original intent in life gets lost and then you start to get the critical voice which says you're worthless and you should commit suicide. What that voice is, is actually, is a, that voice is a protector. It's saying stop doing what you're doing and do you, do what you what, do things for yourself, what you want to do. Yeah. You know, because there's, there's lots of people in mental health services through peer pressure. Yeah. And I think well, something that's not why we need to be looking at what's bringing people to services, because as we sit here talking today, 50% of women and 23% of men currently receiving psychiatric care have been sexually abused as children. Yeah. That is 73%. They're the people that's disclosed. We're about the people that's not yet been asked. Mm -hmm. So to actually say 
you've got a mental illness when someone's been something really detrimental in your life and then exclude you from society mm. then i'm afraid whoever does that they're colluding with the abusers but there were two things that you mentioned that i found really um significant and i'd love if you could expand upon them um the first was that to a certain extent because of your um previous experiences the argument could be made that the voices were a, a coping mechanism or a protection that your brain devised. The second was you mentioned something about uh, original intent or the intentionality that, that this seems to, to be very significant in your own life. And I, again, I was just wondering if you would mind explaining that a little bit because I, I, uh, I found it very interesting. Yeah, when, uh, when my voices were talking about bad things that had happened in my life, it's a very, very painful thing to hear. But what, the, what we say voices are messages that bring awful messages. But it's how you perceive that message. Voices are talking about things in your life that you haven't dealt with. So basically they're saying you're stuck. They're saying, well, if you, if the, you've got to be on the metaphor of the voice. Because actually we also say about voices, don't shoot the messenger. You've got something very, very important to say. And it's actually not understanding the message. Because we have something called infantism. Mm -hmm. When someone gets uh, abused as a child, emotional development stops. Because we put it in this box, we shut the lid and we have all this don't open Pandora's box and the can of worms. I'm afraid you have to. Oh, that's why people can't explain their experiences or the circumstances because still seeing it through a child's eyes. Mm. Once you open that box and you see that fear went in there that is now out of date, you can see it through an adult's eyes. And the, the content of the voices then make sense. They, they save a protective function. Like if I overwork, my voices get angry. Mm. So that means I have to slow down. So if you take my voices away, you're taking my other warning signs away. Completely now, do you find that you, as long as you work with the voices, they work with you? Well, my voices never go away. They're there all the time, 24-7. But uh, they're a part of me. And mm. they, they do some protective function. And had it not been for uh, a new voice I got, I wouldn't have been able to write my book. Because I'd kind of found peace within myself and within my life. Mm. Interestingly enough, now the book's published, the voices disappeared. Again, so it was quite sad at first when it won, but it's, it's been, it's, it's done its job and, and it's moved on, basically. Mm. Some voices come, some voices go, you know. Question, but uh, do, do you have voices that have been with you your whole life? Since I was seven. Uh, but I mean the same, the same voice? Yes, a, a, a particular voice, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. It's... Yeah. I, th I sometimes think the terminology isn't all that useful because everybody thinks that they know what it must be like to hear a voice in your head, but actually I, I'm trying to wrap my brain around it. It's quite a... We all have an internal speech, don't we? But yeah. uh, the, inter the internal speech wouldn't be classed as a voice. Or it'd be classed as a voice, it's got to be heard in the third person. Yeah. So it's basically commenting on or about someone, and it's, and it's, it's different from their own thoughts. Mm. So uh, that... that, that, that makes it clearly, clearly different. Obviously, voices are a part of us. Uh, you know, I'm a great believer in the works of Marius Rom and Sandra Escher, and I do believe that voices are repressed emotions mm. that come out through your thought process. But I also really like the work of Ensink, and he basically said, you know, if you don't, it's not the trauma, it's the non-disclosure of trauma. Yeah. If you don't if you don't disclose it, the brain will start to speak to itself about it, mm. and that mm. comes out as voices. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's really, really interesting. Well, you did that thing when you uh, when you came to speak with us, and you sort of went, "How many people have ever got a song stuck in their head?" And yeah. half the room, you know, puts puts their hand up, and um, and I I've had that thing where the song is playing in my head, and it's driving me mad, 
and it's like I need to run to a room and just sing it out loud or something to make it to make it go away but it certainly doesn't feel like it's anything controllable but I think that was the first time that I ever sort of thought oh yeah we all do that um you know and I, I was aware that I was going to have have some uh, some new perspectives when I when I went to the event but that was a really I know you could see everybody in the room kind of went oh I do that too you know yeah, yeah. Well, I remember once I don't know why I would got boys on singing in bed for ages just, just go away, will you? And then <laughs> Kenny, Rogers, Kenny Rogers came in as well. I so thought, for God's sake, not you and all. Well, I, uh, I have a copy of your book here, um, A Village Called Pumpkin, and I've just started reading it, um, but I, have, I haven't finished yet. Um, but I'm, I'm very much enjoying it. I, I, very, I, I very much like the, the way in which it's written. It seems to, uh, it has great humour within every line, even when it's describing not necessarily the happiest events. Eva, this is your first book. Uh, you're yes. a big grown man, so I'm, I'm thinking that this must have been a bit of a surprise to you. Um, especially when, given your life story, I would have thought an autobiography, a more natural foray, but you know, this is very different. How did this all come about? Well, it, it was just by a voice. It woke me at three o'clock in the morning. and It was a female voice. I didn't know who it was. And it just said a village called Pumpkin. And I wrote it on a piece of paper and I lost this piece of paper. And then I found it under my mum, my dead mum's jewellery box. Mm. And then his voice, simultaneously, each night kept waking me up and giving me names of characters. And, and then it said, it's a children's book. And I thought, I can't write a children's book. But then he gave me the theme for the first chapter and it just flowed. Mm. And then I was mm. stuck. I tried to write a chapter without the voice and it didn't work. I had to wait while the voice came back. That's why it took me three and a half years. I was just stuck between between chapters. Yeah. But it was so yeah. easy once I got the theme. But it got a bit difficult at times because as I was writing it, the the characters would speak to me, ask what role they were playing and what they're going to be saying next. So you like having a dialogue with the characters while you're trying to write as well. And we had a real stroppy vet because um, there was one in it, in one of the chapters, and uh, the sheep gets injured. And I thought, well, it's a children's book. You can't let sheep die. Mm. So I had to bring this vet in. It was a Sunday morning and all these characters were speaking to me and said to the effect, you've got to save the sheep. And he said, I want a line. I said, well, you can't have a line. He said, well, I'm not, I'm not saving them. So I was arguing with his vet about this thing. Like, my partner thinks, well, you're talking to him. So I'm talking to the vet. So I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so I had to write a line for the vet so he'd save the sheep. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've, I've, I've spoken with other authors and they've, the, the phrase that often is used is that characters sometimes go off in their own direction. Um in your case, that's a really specific, <laughs> it'll stop and argue with you first. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have you talked to other authors? I mean, have you found the experience? Because I mean, a lot of uh, people have so many different ways of writing. I mean, have you have you found out whether yours is very unique or if it's just within the pantheon? Uh, I don't know, really, because I've, really, I've not really spoken to, to anyone else, so I'm not really sure. I'm just a... Uh... Just the style that popped into my head that I wrote with, really. Um, I have got two more books I want to write, but I think I'll be able to do it without the voices. Mm. Um, one of them, in one of the chapters, I don't know if you got to the point where we've got the the, <coughs> the albino tubby hogs. Yes. Yeah. Well, I want to write a book about them called um, the Great Tubby Hog Adventure. Mm. Uh, and that, and, and my third book is about it's going to be about a guy, and he works in a warehouse, and uh, he hates it. And he gets bullied at work. Mm. So he leaves and becomes a children's entertainer. But he's, he's that bad at it. The kids laugh. 
But he's, he dresses as, as he's six foot tall and he dresses as a squirrel. And it's going to be called Squirrel Pete's Nuts. <laughs> I think uh, it sounds as so. You think without the voices, do you think that these will come to you quicker or come to the page quicker? I, I think so. I, I think the voices may play a role at some point, but um, <laughs> I think I, I can start it without that because I've, I've already got the ideas on where on where it can go. And I just think I think this voice really uh, was part of my creative side coming out to give me that spur to uh, to do it. Mm. Uh, because when I do. Um, uh, sit and write. It does distract me from the voices, and I can really, really, and I, I, I do enjoy it when I when I get down to it. Because yeah. I have yeah. actually been commissioned to do my autobiography by a company in London, but I, I've just not had the time to sit down and, and start it. Really, I'd, I'd like to. Interesting. You know, I, I spoke to someone from, from, from the Welcome Centre, and she said she's quite happy to to tape it and transcribe it, which was which was really helpful. Yeah, that that'd be terrific. I would imagine, though, um, it's quite a daunting prospect. Uh, as as interesting as your story is, uh, uh, it's always difficult when you're looking back over any period of time. It, it'll ha have an emotional um, uh, impact on you too, I would imagine. Yeah, and it's kind of what what do you put in? Um, a guy, Bob Safey, he's a senior lecturer at Lancaster University. He was really helpful, and he said to me, "Well, where did you ever do your first presentation?" And uh, and I said, "Well, it's it was in Whitney in uh, in Oxford." Hmm. And he says, well, that's a good starting point because uh, the country's in unrest and David Cameron was from Whitney. And um, <laughs> he says, you could start there where you did first your first presentation and then talk about bring you virtually where you are now and then go back to the past. So it's a good idea of maybe maybe doing it or go so far back to the past mm. and back to the future. Well, I really like that because it, um, it rather uniquely it focuses on who you are right now and has all of that other information as additional information, whereas a lot of autobiographies are told in a very linear fashion, um, as though the past utterly dictates the present and the future, which I don't personally believe. Um, no. So I think I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, get writing on that. I'd like to read that. Hurry up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, just, you know, soon would be good. <laughs> are, are you a big reader yourself? And if so, what sort of books do you read? Uh, I tend to read uh, not as much uh, as I should, but I, I always finish up reading books about mental health more than anything. Uh, I'm just reading one at Mormon called The Wisdom of the Psychopath, and um, it's, it's an interesting book actually, and this guy who's writing is a psychologist who's basically trying to say, you know, we've all got that area of manipulation in ourselves, mm. it's, uh, and he's looking at how clever they are, how they mark the victims out through how vulnerable how they walk and things like that but it's, mm. it's, it's interesting interesting but I, I read one recently and it was really good it was the, the psychopath test by john ronson yes i've just read that i was about to ask that's fantastic, fantastic. Absolutely. it's a, it's actually one of the uh, the sharing stories um book month uh, a reading list um and um, one so at some point we're going to be having a bit of a uh, a read of that as a as a book club and i'm so looking forward to sharing it with people it, it made so much sense but at the same time, I was horrified at the thought of like, and we we have the again, it's these stereotypes. We have this idea of of a psychopath, and they're rushing around the place, you know, with the big knife, and and you know, all cold and calculating, and and they're saying, no, the vast majority of them are are just, you know, ruling the world. They're right. building up their power base. They're focusing on money, not you know, not anything else, and and 
it made so much sense but yeah as soon, I, for the whole week every time I had a fight with anybody I was like pulling out the book going through the questions going oh yeah they're clearly a psychopath it's not me yeah. <laughs> another good one that's similar to that um, snakes in suits oh I've not come across that one and that's looking at how like, power businessmen are really psychopaths and like you know we had the war in Iraq and, uh, and Afghanistan and Somebody bored the question, how does Tony Blair, Tony Blair sleep at night with the lives that's been lost? Mm. And he, his answer to that was, it was a joint decision. It wasn't only my decision. So actually you could say the man's been manipulative. Just a touch. Uh, well, I, I, I don't think we even need to go as far back as that. Look at how many people lost their homes and not a single banker seems to have been charged with it. You know, it's... Uh... Right. That's right. It's... it's yeah. um, <laughs> That line from uh, from The Godfather, I, I'm always reminded of that scene in um, Sleepless in Seattle where somebody turns around to Meg Ryan and says, um, it's business, not personal. And she just goes, my business is personal. Why do people keep saying that? Like, it's an excuse. And I, I think yeah. we've become a bit like that as a society. There's this idea that like, oh, but we were making money. And that seems to excuse a lot. And again, going back to the John Ronson book, it was like, oh, yeah, this all makes a scary sort of sense now, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's true, it's true. Yeah, I've got to say, most books are kind of um, work-related. It's an interesting one I bought, I haven't finished it yet, I'm halfway through it, it's called Forgiveness and Child Abuse. Hmm. Look, a lady called Lois Einhorn, and she's a professor in America now, but uh, the abuse she suffered with her sister at the hands of her parents were horrific, unbelievably horrific. But what she's done is, she's wrote to a lot of people around the world. She's wrote to people on death row, she's wrote to politicians, she's wrote to ministers, she's wrote to actors and saying, should I forgive them? And uh, and it's really interesting. And uh, I think, you know, Patch Adams, a laughter therapist guy, yeah. Yeah. He, he gives a, a fantastic answer. Uh, and he says, no, you can't forgive them. But I'm not sure you can blame them. He says, because what made them that, like they were? Maybe we have to go back generations to find the real problem. I thought that was a really good answer. I mean, Look at why is society acting in a certain way that we are. We don't do exclude people from uh, society through mental health problems and yeah. victimise people, we abuse people. Where, how are those people made? Because they're not born that way. Um, how far back do we go as a generation thing? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a bit of a brain twister there as well, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I I must keep my eye out for that. That looks um that. That looks like it's worth um, worth dipping into, particularly in light of uh, of of our focus this year on on in increasing awareness. Have you um I don't know did anybody ever hand you a list of the books that are on on offer for the uh, the, the reading list? The first one is um uh, the Silver Linings Playbook, which has just been made into a film, which seems to be hugely successful. But I've I have not uh, come across it yet myself. Um, no, I've seen that. Uh, Jane Eyre is another one because, of course, it's got the classic crazy lady in the attic, and uh, and the idea is to look at this with fresh eyes and and try and show a little bit more compassion than perhaps we usually do. So uh, it's lovely to have a Yorkshire book in there as well, you know. <laughs> yeah. So you um you go around the the country and you speak with different groups and um. Where have you found the most receptive? Uh, do you find that it's actually with people who have first-hand knowledge of mental health difficulties? Or are you finding that, you know, I, I know you had some problems um, yourself within the diagnostic and the care 
element, but are you seeing improvements there? Are people willing to learn? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I, I think it's variable, really. Um, I, as I say, I did a teaching session on Friday. It was a full day on paranoia. And the guy who organised it from Sheffield Council, he emailed me today and said, the best evaluations he's ever seen. Uh, and I think the difference is, when people come to those events, they want to be there. Yeah. So, And I think sometimes we are preaching to the converted, but sometimes you do get some people that need leaning on a little bit, really. But um, having said that, you know, I, I did a, a teaching session at the Peter Hodgkinson Centre to 55 psychiatrists. Some thought I was probably insane, but some actually thought I was thought it was really good. Yeah. And as I say, you know, I, I did a, a big session in Brisbane in Australia to 100 psychiatrists, and it was video linked elsewhere, mm. and the feedback was really good. And and I said then, you know, the words of Bob Dylan, the times they are a changing, but yeah. I think um, the wheels of mental health grind very slowly, and you have to accept that you're not going to make a sweeping change. Mm. I, I kind of set my stall that a small increment of change leads to a large increment of change. Yeah. I think that, that's the important thing, really. And, and the Hearing Voices movement is the fastest growing user movement in the world now. Mm. Uh, you know, we've got places like Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia, Palestine, all across Europe. Mm. So people are looking for something else. They are looking for something else. And I think the best breakthrough has been the work of Robert Whittaker, who's basically said he's proved that antipsychotics can't work. So there's not going to be a third generation of neuroleptics. Yeah. So people have got yeah. to now look for something different. Yeah. yeah. And hopefully that will be more understanding what brings people to services, can understand their experiences, get out of the system and not ex be exposed to stigma and discrimination. Absolutely. Uh, it, 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 does, it does seem as though we are, um, we are more, more aware and more compassionate, but nowhere near where we need to be. However, with the Hearing Voices Network now having such a such scope internationally, what sort of feedback are you getting in terms of, um, you know, of, of cultural aspects to it? I mean, presumably in different parts of the world, there are different contexts and, and hopefully in some places, people, you know, who, who hear voices are automatically treated better than they would necessarily be here. But yeah. presumably there are places where it's still horrifying. I mean. Do you, do you ever sort of post that sort of information? Yeah, obviously in some countries people are quite revered. Um, and again, if in some countries, some people see it as a gift, but it's society that makes it a problem. And I think, because what, what really alarmed me was the amount of um, discrimination in Australia. Mm. It's, it's really, really bad. But the Aborigines are amazing people. They really, they really get it. It's a very spiritual context, but... Because of, because of their tech on it, you know, they're kind of excluded even more, just even from the fact that they've liked that they've got these, this itself has been a gift and a, and a spirit god or something. Yeah. And they've yeah. forced into hospitals against their will. So the system's created the discrimination. Mm. That's the mm -hmm. psychiatric services. Yeah. And I think it is very variable, but um, I think globally people are looking for something different. But we actually, at the Hearing Voices Network, you know, we, we, we don't just say, yes it is trauma we accept all explanations people come from a spiritual context mm. whatever it needs to be you know people from the indian community will talk about jinns and deities and things like that yeah we accept that but if it comes a problem in your life let's see how we can work with that problem mm. Mm. spoken in the past about how um your upbringing um which i think was fairly judeo-christian 
impacted uh, upon you during one of your episodes. I, you were, uh, I, I would love if you would just explain that to our listeners because you were a- absolutely hysterically funny about one of the saddest things I've ever heard in my life, but you told it so yeah. well. Yeah, well I got to a situation when I was, I was attending a Hearing Voices group and I got a good worker called Sally and I'd actually got a good psychiatrist called Paul. But I, I was not getting any meaning or understanding about my experiences. So I tried to evaluate my life. I stopped listening. I stopped going to the group. That was the starting point. I stopped listening to Sally and I stopped listening to Paul. And as I say, I was very fortunate they didn't give up on me. Now, I had nine people working for me on the shop floor. And I hadn't seen one of them since my first admission. So I thought, well, perhaps they're my disciples. They've all betrayed me. And before I actually had my initial breakdown, I'd had an out-of-body experience. So I thought, oh, I've died and I've resurrected. I've been on the acute wards. I've been to hell and back. It fits. I must be Jesus Christ. We always say you're not a full appeared at member of psychotic society unless you've been Jesus. So I thought, with this newfound information, what shall I do? So I thought, I'll go to Sheffield Cathedral. I'll go and show myself. But as I got to big wooden doors, I thought, oh shit, they crucified Christ. I must have a last supper. So I went to McDonald's and got a sausage and egg and a muffin contemplating the crucifixion. Then I went back across, and as I walked in, a man stopped me, and he says, you know, what do you want? I said, I come to see the main man, I've come to show myself. And he was talking to me for about 10 minutes. He really wasn't listening to what I was saying, but he foolishly left me. Now, as I said, I've not been in the cathedral since, but there used to be a pulpit face in the main auditorium. There was also one side on, and there was a vicar side on doing a sermon to some old age pensioners. So I seized my chance around down the cathedral and never saw me coming. I jumped in the pulpit, and he actually turned around and went, Christ almighty. I thought, fantastic, he's recognised me. So he had to stop the whole sermon and, and he took me in this back room and he says, what are you playing at? I said, well, I thought you recognised me. We had this long drawn out conversation which finished up with him saying, have you ever been in a mental hospital? <laughs> I said, well, a few times, what's that going to do with anything? And he said, I'm starting a group for people with mental health problems in September, would you like to come? And he took me details and I'm not sure which September he meant because I've never heard from him since. So I'm quite disillusioned I wasn't the Messiah, but uh, that was me, my journey into it. Actually, he, you know, it. It went on for quite a while, actually. He actually got me sectioned one time because, I don't know, I don't street something stupid like preaching on the streets or something like that. And But this is the madness of the system. I got took to the hospital by the police and a nurse said, you know, what are you doing back here? And I said, well, can't you tell them Jesus Christ? And she looked absolutely horrified. And she went away and come back with a senior nurse. And a senior nurse says, oh, Peter, I hear you think you're Jesus Christ. And I said, no, I don't think I know. And she said, well, you're presenting us with a real problem. We've already got two Jesuses on the ward. And if we admit you, you might upset the status quo. So this is this is where we get really crazy now. She says, are you sure you're not John the Baptist? I says, you can sod off. You're not downgrading me to John the Baptist. I'm Jesus Christ. But, but can you imagine if I'd accepted I was John the Baptist? How can they then tell me I'm not? It's just the whole madness of the system. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I imagine there was some sort of logic there, but I admit it's... It's escaping me. I couldn't me. find it. <laughs> Happy during that phase. I mean, you found a certain peace, I imagine, in knowing who you were. And what's it like when that changes? Is it a, a, a jolt back to yourself, or, or do you just gradually go back to not well, thinking that you're... It made sense to me at that time, you know, and because uh, I, I felt that people were picking the car horns and waving, and people I didn't know were talking to me. So I thought, well, it, may, I must, it, it must be... In, 
at last I'd, I'd got an answer. Or it was a wrong answer at that time, but it yeah. gave me a bit of peace at that time. Yeah. Now I know what's happening. And I suppose for a moment I had more control in my life, but that gave me some control back. Yeah, so I was just saying, it's, at least you had a, a very firm idea of what was uh, what was going on once more. Um, I'm aware that I'm uh, that time is is creeping on, and uh, uh, once again, I'd just like to thank you very much for um, for joining us. I will be reviewing your book at some point um, on the blog, so I will send you a link once that's happened. And uh, for anybody who's who's listened to this and um, would like to get in touch with the Hearing Voices Network, I will be including links to uh, to your various. Um, I know you're involved in a, a couple of different um, different organisations, and I, I think a, a newsletter or a, a monthly publication. Yeah, you can get the. Uh, you, you can order my book from the National Paranoia website as well. Yeah. Um, so I'll stick links to all of those websites up. Um, thank you so much for for joining us this evening. Thank you for the speech that you made at the Sharing Stories Network. And um, once I have the book read, I'll be pestering you for a, a more purely author-based um, question and answer. And I uh, hope to find you receptive to that. So thank you once again, Peter. You're welcome.